This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, April 1st, 2009. I'm Caleb Brown. Words matter, and when the word is war, it's hard to overestimate how carefully it should be used. Since President Bush's war on terror was announced in 2001, the use of a war metaphor has come with assertions of broader powers by the president. But the U.S. may be turning a corner, so to speak, in how terms like war are used. And so far, that is mostly to the good. So says Cato Institute legal policy analyst David Ritgers. The Obama administration recently transitioned the language that they're using to describe what we're doing overseas in uh, Afghanistan and uh, Iraq and Horn of Africa, wherever else we're deployed, uh, to overseas contingency operations as opposed to the global war on terror. This is a good thing because uh, terrorists bridge, sit in some gap between being soldiers and being criminals. Uh, What they do is criminal. Uh, but at the same time, it's done with organization that parallels a military uh, uh, apparatus. So they would prefer to use the soldier paradigm to describe what they're doing because war is a legitimate kind of conflict. Uh, and, and so they refer to themselves in the language of soldiers. We are fighting a holy war. And uh, so it's the global war on terrorism, the, the GWAT, uh, that term is in essence, that is uh, playing their mother of all battles kind of language, is playing their game and it paints them into uh, the soldier paradigm uh, more uh, than is useful for, for what we're doing fighting them. Uh, and frankly, this is actually a, a, something that lawyers have been guilty of doing uh, because the president's powers, when he's acting in his role as commander-in-chief, uh, he will have broader powers uh, where Congress has not stepped in to uh, counteract whatever he's doing uh, when he's acting as commander-in-chief than in other roles. Uh, so a lot of this war language uh, has been something that's been dictated by lawyers. And there was actually a brief period of time when Donald Rumsfeld floated the, uh, instead of the GWAT, he said, we could more accurately call this the global struggle against violent extremism, or the G-save, which uh, might be more descriptive, but within, I think, eight hours or so, uh, the administration had turned around and said, no, this is still the global war on terror, because we have to be working in this war paradigm for legal powers of the commander-in-chief to activate and have broad discretion to do what we want. But in terms of propaganda, uh, you know, again, that plays the game exactly the way that al-Qaeda and the Taliban want to play it. I know lawyers are obsessed with words and their usage. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the war metaphor playing out on the battlefield, how does that uh, affect the U.S position out on the battlefield. You said that by declaring this a war, we're actually playing al-Qaeda's game. What, how, does, how else does that play out on the battlefield using this the war metaphor? Well, it, uh, it's interesting that you use the word battlefield because when you put everything in the war paradigm, you're defining the whole world as your battlefield. Uh, and actually, uh, good counterinsurgency theory uh, requires... Uh, low-level insurgencies, uh, latent and incipient insurgencies is the the doctrinal term of art. Uh, That's a law enforcement function. And when you're 
going through the special forces qualification course, they tell you when you're in this phase and it's domestic, this is the realm of the FBI and a U.S. attorney and a, a bunch of cops. Uh, when it becomes guerrilla war and it's overseas, then that's where we're doing something. We're stepping in. Uh, but we have to make a partition between the things that we put into a military paradigm and things that we put into a law enforcement or a criminal justice paradigm. How do we make the distinction between functions of military and law enforcement overseas? Well, I think uh, we have to make that distinction. As you say, overseas, I think the things that are overseas are more likely going to fall into the military category. Uh, people who criticize uh, you know, prosecuting some domestic terrorists in federal court say that we're, uh, we're pounding the square peg of terrorism into the round hole of criminal justice, and this isn't a model that we can use uh, all around. And that may be true to a certain extent, but let's, let's take that metaphor and, and, and let's make that more accurate. Uh, terrorism is really a series of square pegs, and we have two round holes that represent the paradigms of military force and the law enforcement paradigm, on the other hand. So we have the military and law enforcement. And each of these square pegs, we're going to have to cram into one of these two holes uh, because the line between these two paradigms is the line of liberty. The, you know, the, this is the reason that we have police enforcing the laws and not soldiers domestically. And we have soldiers using force overseas and not police. We have to make that distinction. Uh, so we have to cram each of these. This detainee uh, captured overseas, uh, clearly a Taliban fighter. We put him in the military category. Uh, someone domestically, we put them in the law enforcement category. And meshing too much of these paradigms is unhealthy for us. And people will say, well, you know, this is this is a, a new and and uh, and uh, different threat that we have to counter in some whole totally new paradigm uh, just for terrorism. And I don't. I think if you create this terrorism paradigm that lives on the line between the military and law enforcement, it's going to gobble up portions uh, of our liberties domestically uh, th that we're that we're not going to be comfortable with. What is the significance of detainees that have had to have been released and? have found their way back to the battlefield? Well, we're not going to be able to solve that problem entirely. Uh, and as an example, there, there was, there was a, a dust-up over one of these guys, uh, Ghulam Razul, uh, who was released from Guantanamo in 2007, made his way back to the battlefield, and is now a leader, Taliban leader in the Helmand province, very contested area of Afghanistan. This gentleman turned himself in to our forces, and then gave conflicting stories. Uh, either he was involved in the Taliban and was a leader, or he was pressed into service and they gave him an AK-47 and he was just carrying it around. He had no intention of shooting at anybody. If you're holding someone solely on what they have told you and you have no corroborating evidence or circumstances of capture that he didn't create himself, uh, then... You don't, there's no good system to fix that. So both parties are going to be tossing back and forth these cases. Uh, the Bush administration ended up releasing some guys that went back to the battlefield. The Obama administration may end up doing the same thing. This should not become a political football because there is no good legal solution to divine the truth out of these people and find out exactly what their involvement with 
terrorist organizations was. So we should just take these outlier cases and, and, and bury them because it's not a good place to have an argument uh, on these facts. David Ritgers is a legal policy analyst at the Cato Institute. You can read more of his work at Cato.org.